Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. The mission of Man Talks is to help develop self aware, high performing, and impactful men in the world, the type of men you want to be and the type of men you want to be around. Joining me today is a very special guest, but before I bring him in, I just want to remind all the guys to head over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. You can either just search for Man Talks community or you can go to facebook.com forward slash Man Talks dash community. In that group, we've got men from all over the world who have discussions on fatherhood, finance, fitness, anything from business and entrepreneurship to how we can stay in shape and set goals for ourselves on a weekly basis. We've got some great challenges and some great conversations. So head on over and join the tribe. All right, so joining me today is somebody that's a little bit different. His name is Gary Arndt. And Gary is really one of the top world travelers. He's got a blog called everything-everywhere.com. You may have heard of it. It is one of the top five travel blogs in the world. Here's a little bit about Gary. So in March of 2007, he sold his house and has been traveling around the world ever since. So for nine years, he actually just settled down, uh, which we get into. Uh, but since he started traveling, uh, he's probably done and more more and seen more than, than he did in the entire rest of his life combined. So check this out. So, so far, he has visited all seven continents, over 175 countries and territories around the world, all 50 of the states in the United States uh, and every U.S. territory every Canadian province, every Australian state and territory, over 125 U.S. National Park Services sites, and over 300 UNESCO World Heritage sites. Just to list off a couple of the crazy things that Gary has also gotten into, uh, he landed and launched from a nuclear aircraft carrier. He went dog sledding in the Canadian Yukon, bungee jumped in New Zealand, floated in the Dead Sea, crossed the Arctic Circle in the Yukon, rode in a Formula One car at 180 uh, miles per hour, which is 300 kilometers an hour for the rest of the world uh, in Spain. He has, uh, let's see, what else has he done? He's dove in the ruins of the Great Lighthouse of Alexandra in Egypt, swam with whale sharks in Australia, been spelunking in Borneo. And for anybody out there that doesn't know what spelunking is, that is basically cave diving and swam with jellyfish in Palau. So Today, we are going to talk about some of his journeys. We're going to dive into some of the crazy stuff that he got up to on his travels, some of the coolest places that he's been to. You know, he talks about some of the places that all of us would like to visit, sort of the iconic places like, like Paris and some of the places in Germany and Spain. But he also shares some really cool insight on how to find the off the beaten trail, off the map, off the grid unique places that everyone should see before they die and some of the experiences that people should have before they die. So whether you are a traveler or not, whether you do a ton of traveling or you just want to start traveling, this podcast episode dives into some really cool content. And Gary also shares a lot of his lessons from what he's learned in all this traveling, because as you can imagine, traveling changes you. So without any further ado, I'd like to bring on Mr. Gary Arndt. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to to interview you. You've Travel all over the world. It's it looks like you've done some incredible, incredible things. I was reading off your your bio before, and it, I mean, <laughs> just the amount of places that you've been is is pretty incredible. There must be some amazing experiences. But I'm going to start off with the question 
which is, can you tell us a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today? Uh, sure. It would probably be back in 2005 to understand how 2017 Gary came about. Uh, I had started a very early internet company back in 1994. And to give you an idea, uh, when, I, when I first started, I remember having arguments with people about whether we should use the table tag because uh, you know, Netscape didn't even exist at the time. It was the browser before the uh, Mosaic, which came out from uh, the University of Illinois. There were things like that. So it was a very early internet company. I sold it in 1998. I was still 20 years old. I started some other companies and then I started thinking, well, what do I really want to do? And I was a successful academic debater in college. I placed in the top 10 in the United States twice. And I thought about it. I was like, well, if I could go back, I would treat debate like football and I would completely blow off my classes. And like a lot of football players, they get by getting D's. I would do that and I would try to get win a national championship. But I can't do that anymore because I don't have any eligibility. And the other thing I would do is I would go get a degree in physics. So I thought, well, I could still do that. I, I had a degree in math and economics and always enjoyed science. So I went back to school for two and a half years and basically uh, just took science classes, ended up uh, studying earth geology and geophysics. And I was in my 30s at the time, kind of my mid-30s, and I saw a lot of the PhD students and what they were going through. And what I realized was it was kind of late in life to start an academic career. And I also realized I don't think I liked academia. I liked learning, but I didn't particularly liked all the things that you had to do in a university and the politics and everything else. And so I don't know how it came to me, but I came up with this idea of selling my house and traveling around the world. After I had sold my company in 1999, uh, the company I sold it to was a big global company and they had offices around the world. And I convinced them to send me on a trip around the world to talk to all their local offices about uh, the Internet. And so they had me do this. And I went on a three week whirlwind tour. And it was the first time I'd ever really traveled anywhere. I went to Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, France, Germany, Belgium and the UK. This is just one big trip around the world. And it stuck with me for a long time. And I, I wanted to do something like that again. So I hatched this idea of selling my house and traveling around the world. And it took me about 18 months to tie up all the loose ends, to sell the house. It wasn't a really great time for the housing market. And then in March 13th, 2011, I handed over the keys to my house. And for almost nine years after that, I was basically living on the road. Uh, it was only last year that I finally got burned out and decided that I probably needed to, to have a place to live between trips. Uh, so I got an apartment where I am right now in Minneapolis, uh, but I still travel quite a bit. I'm on the road about a third to half of the year, uh, but I just have a place to work and uh, go between trips now. Beautiful. That's a, that's a great story. I mean, <laughs> there's, uh, there's some interesting pieces in there. And I mean, one of the reasons why I had you on the podcast is because, you know, the amount of travel that you've done and the places that you've seen, and I think it's a very unique perspective not only just on the places that you've seen, but the experiences that you must have had. But before we dive into that, I'm, I'm curious about the debate aspect. That's something that's, that's unexpected. And I would love to dig into that a little bit. What drew you to debate? What, what was it about, uh, about debating that was, that was so like compelling? I was good at it. Uh, <laughs> I, was a, I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, prior to that, I had done track and field. And I was... I was pretty fast, I guess, but there was nothing else about me that was athletic. I got cut from Little League twice. I was a very, very mediocre basketball player in like junior high. And then I discovered the debate team 
And our high school had an okay debate team. Uh, but even in high school, I, so I did speech and debate and I, I placed in the top 10 in the United States at the national tournament and extemporaneous speech, which is basically you're given a question. So I was in foreign extemp and it's something about foreign policy or foreign affairs. And you have 30 seconds to prepare an eight minute speech on answering that question. And it could be about anything. So I did that. And then I did debate in college as well. But it was something, yeah, it was just it, it just came quite natural to me. And it was probably the most valuable thing I ever did kind of in my formative years. And I always tell this to everybody. It's like, you know, a lot of people, I talk about sports. And when they talk about the value of sports, they seldom talk about the physical aspect of it. It's the competition and the camaraderie and all that stuff. And that was just as true in debate because it's an extremely competitive activity. But the skills you learn go way beyond what you do in sports. I mean, you probably know people from high school or college who were jocks and, you know, were very popular and, and, and they were good at sports. And then once that ended, they didn't really have much to fall back on. Whereas almost everybody I know who was, whether or not they went to my school or on my team, who did debate and took it halfway seriously, went on to become extremely successful. And I should add, I'm like one of the only people that didn't get an advanced degree or as a lawyer of all the people I know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I feel like debate really is such a, such a huge skill and, and can be so applicable in so many different careers. So I'm just, I'm just curious if we can just pause here for, for just a minute. I would love to hear, um, and I know that this is, you know, this is taking you back quite, quite a bit. Um, but I'm sure that these skills have transferred, you know, into what you did traveling around the world for nine years. But what are some of the key components of being a good debater? Because I think that this is something that, you know, a lot of people could use, especially if you're in a leadership role, regardless of the profession that you're in. If you're in a leadership role or you have to, you know, do client facing, you know, mergers, acquisitions, or, or even if you're just in like the retail space or something like that, where you're just dealing with consumers on a day-to-day -day basis, I can imagine that these skills would be absolutely instrumental to what you do. So what are some of the foundational components of being, being good at debating? It's not arguing. I think that's where a lot of people are very confused. Mm. An academic debate is often not eloquent, flowery speaking. It's a very fast paced activity with people sometimes speaking like 300 words a minute because it's a lot of, of data analysis. So one of the things is uh, research because it's a very research intensive activity. And the, the one area where I probably should have done much better when I was actively debating uh, that I really made up for when I was coaching was uh, in the area of research. After college, I went to go coach my old high school team and we were the first high school in the country. This is in the early 90s to have a LexisNexis account. And, 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 you know, that's normally used by like law firms and things like that. And we got a three month trial subscription to LexisNexis and it was like $500 a month. So it's $1,500. And we used over $120,000 worth of Nexus searches in those three months. And the woman who was the sales representative was just astounded that we, that we used it that much. And this is before the internet, you have to remember, there's no World Wide Web kind of at this point. And because we, we were one of their biggest customers. And then when the trial period was over, she's like, so do you want to like buy the service? And we're just like, no. So research, research is one and to really do it. And you know, and the other thing is when you're, when you do get in a disagreement with someone, one thing is to, uh, people have a tendency to always, you know, oh, you say A, I say B. And you see this a lot in terms of politics and things like that. When, if you think about it, there's usually always some basis that somebody thinks something that has either a, a germ of truth, or you can at least understand why they think the way they do. Let's take, for example, flat earth, people who think the earth is flat. 
It's a preposterous idea. We know that's not true. And there's a whole bunch of ways you can prove it. But if you could put yourself back in time 10 to 20,000 years ago, right, you could kind of understand why people thought the earth was flat. You know, if you can at least understand the, the starting point where somebody is coming from, that they're that the reason why they believe something, it becomes a lot easier to deal with them. And oftentimes you can say, well, you know, actually, you are right about X, but I, I, you're not right about Y and Z for the following reasons. It disarms people a lot when you're willing to admit that they are right about something as opposed to just saying you're wrong, you're an idiot. It, it's extremely effective. Yeah, it sounds like some of the key, like some of the, the foundational pieces might just be around finding some common ground that you can understand and comprehend. Because I think that I think you're right. When people think about debate or conflict management, especially within an organization, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about people that are leading teams and whatnot or, or working with colleagues that are challenging uh, and, and having a disagreement that oftentimes it turns into an argument simply because we don't have the tools to have a disagreement and, and actually try and understand the other person's perspective. So this sounds like the real first step is to understand their side and sort of be able to communicate you understand the the sort of origins of of why they believe that. Yeah, a good example would be you've probably you may have worked in a place or you've been in some organization that had just some bizarre rules, right? Some workplace rule that everyone just kind of rolls their eyes at and it makes no sense. Those rules were probably created for a reason. Somebody did something or something happened where they needed to put that rule in place. But the problem is, over time, people forgot why the rule was put in place, and now it's just a rule we follow for no particular reason. Or maybe that rule outlived its usefulness. And you can kind of use the same thing by just trying to you know, reverse engineer, okay, why is this here? Or to do a better job of communicating. We have this rule which seems stupid because X, Y, and Z. Because if we didn't have this rule, that would happen. And we don't want that to happen. So that's why we have to do it this way. And most people, I think, when it's explained to them, why something is. And even if, even if you say, look, we get why this could be, you know, a pain to have to deal with, or this can be very cumbersome, but this is why we have to do it this way. Most people are, will at least begrudgingly go along with it if they understand the rationale behind it. And in most organizations, so many things are done just because that's the rule. We have to follow the rules and it's done without rhyme or reason. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And then in terms of communicating your point, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, research and, and having a really firm grasp on the sort of facts of, of your side or, your, or your, your side of the debate or argument. How do you then insert and, and sort of get people to see your side or your point? Like, what's, is, there, is there sort of like a, a magic or a secret to that that you could share with us? Or is there some some sort of like formula or tactic that you found that works really, really well? Yeah. If you can phrase something in a way which uses their core beliefs and in politics, this is so seldom used, but it would be far better. Uh, there are certain core beliefs that people on the right or the left have, or there's, you know, there, there's some sort of basis and you can oftentimes phrase things or position things such that, well, you know, you might actually support this policy because it actually benefits one of the things that you believe in, you know, for, for whatever the reason might be, as opposed to just, we, we try to be adversarial. And especially in politics, you never see people want to give an inch to the other side, right? You, you, you have to fight everything because they believe conceding anything means your enemies win. And that's not the case. Uh, you can certainly concede things. 
And a lot of times what it ends up doing, and you've seen this throughout history, where one side is a politician involved in a scandal and the other side will pile on and say, oh, you know, they're bad. And they'll say, oh, yeah, but what about this guy from your side? They're forgetting in the act, you know, one, you're actually not defending the person on your side. You're just trying to put the blame somewhere else. And the, the, the people who are, uh, you know, accusing totally forget that, yeah, there was someone on their side as well. And there's lots of different issues. Every time the Senate changes hands, the issue of the filibuster comes up. And it's amazing. You can go and look at some of uh, the quotes or videos where both Republicans and Democrats, the same people will love or hate the filibuster, depending on who's in power. I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe the best example of, of hypocrisy you're ever going to find. Hmm. But it's not happening from a principled stand of, OK, what should role, what role should the filibuster have? And talking about that kind of, you know, outside the realm of politics is everything is determined by that. And I think if you were to take a step back and say, OK, well, this is why we want to have this, because, you know, we may be in the majority today, but we're going to be in the minority at some point in the future and vice versa. Yeah, people take a different aspect. So it's always kind of just rethinking. And so much of, of the way people interact today is adversarial and it's just trying to defeat your opponent or to humiliate them or marginalize them rather actually trying to get something done. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it's interesting. I've never, you know, I've avoided bringing up Trump at all in any dialogue in any podcast, you know, for like the last year, but I'm, but I'm interested on your perspective on this, not, not your political, um, you know, affiliation or anything like that, but, but in terms of strictly from a debate perspective, it's interesting because what I've sort of noticed is that we seem to have entered into an era in a time where opinions have more weight than facts and that people's opinions are being leveraged as a means to uh, get people on, on, the, on their political side, right? So somebody like Donald Trump, he doesn't necessarily use facts or, or you know, research studies he just seems to play on, this is my opinion, and it's the opinion of a lot of people. And whether it's right or wrong, it's simply an opinion that sort of digs into their values and their beliefs. And that's what gains, the, that's, what, that's what gets them on his side. And so I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what do you see in terms of that debate and, and how that has sort of unfolded uh, w- within the American political system? Because he has, he's sort of taken a very different approach from what other people have done. And so I'm curious as to your insight on what has made him so successful in terms of, you know, quote unquote, debating, uh, speci- you know, not, not specific things, but just general topics. I think there are a couple different things at play. Uh, one is that he is a unique personality in American politics. I can't think of anyone else on any side of the spectrum that is quite like him in terms of the way he acts, the way he talks and the things he does. And I think a lot of the success he had was based on the notion that I'm going to come in, I'm going to do things different, made a lot of very large promises with very little, you know, actual plan. You know, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this and Mexico's going to pay for the wall. Well, how are they going to pay for the wall? Well, because they are. And then people were willing to go along with it. And I think a lot of the reason why people are going to, willing to go along with it is primarily cultural. You know, a lot of my family voted for Trump. And it's not that so much they voted for Trump, it's that they refused to vote for Hillary. And I'm a big believer that if the Democrats could get an avowed transgendered Marxist who went deer hunting, they could win. (laughs) Because, no, it's the truth. Because, you know, they they view, and if you look at the, the electoral map, not of the states, but look at it like the county level. And what you'll notice is that 
the homes of the whole country is red, but the places that are not red or blue are primarily large urban areas with a lot of people. And the, the division in the country fundamentally, I think, is urban and rural or suburban and urban or in rural versus urban. And that's the fundamental distinction. And that life in a rural area is so fundamentally different from life in an urban area and uh, the assumptions and the values and uh, just, just the way they go about living that it's very difficult for either side to understand each other. And I think that this cultural difference is, is what's driving a lot of things nowadays. Interesting. So it was, so it was more around uh, him sort of debating from the standpoint of, of assuming a specific sort of subset of values of a, of a, you know, a very large populace of the United States. Which is odd because he has nothing to do with, you know, he's not, a, he lived his whole life in cities. Yeah. He is up until the point he decided to be a Republican. He was basically a, a liberal Democrat who kind of, you know, co-opted the Republicans to, to, to get into power. I, I think people are going to be writing about uh, this election for a very long time. That being said, he did barely win, you know, and it's not an electoral. It's, you know, there were three states that he won by less than half a percentage point. Uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So the he has a very narrow chance. I, personally, I don't think he's going to run for president again. I think his goal was to be president. He has achieved that. What happens, his policies are completely irrelevant. Um, he plays to his base because he likes being popular, and you know those people will cheer him. Uh, so he just continually does it. Uh, but I think, you know, and, and this, is un, this is where I say he's different than most politicians. Most people have some sort of ideological base, and I don't think he does. I think that he... It's basically uh, personality and um, that, that drives almost everything he does, which is why he is so different. And all politicians, to a certain extent, are self-aggrandizing and, and seek power. But he's just been very, very different from everyone else that's kind of come up through the pipe. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I mean, I, I appreciate you uh, unpacking some of that because I think it's, it's, it's something that I've, you know, wanted to broach a little bit. And it's interesting to have your perspective, you know, strictly from somebody who you know, understands the art of, of debate and can kind of unpack some of that, uh, some of that from a, a non-judgmental or, or a non, you know, politically biased opinion to just sort of say, here are some of the tactics, here are, uh, you know, the, the perspective and, and, you know, why he might have uh, taken the side that he's taken. So... The other thing I would say is like when you in academic debate, so there are the people who judge the debate rounds tend to be other coaches, things like that. It is quite common to vote for things that you absolutely do not agree with all the time because you have to you have to change sides. And so you're always advocating something that you don't agree with, which is one of, I think, the benefits of doing academic debate. You're forced to argue things that you may not support. And so you're voting for things, not on the basis of whether you like them, but how well they were argued and advocated. In a political debate like the presidential debates, all that is meaningless. I would be willing to bet if you polled people before a presidential debate and afterwards, the number of people who could honestly say that they changed their mind is probably in the very low single digits, if even that. It simply reinforces what people already believe. You know, no one's really going to change their mind. They tend to just be dog show type events uh, for appealing to your base. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, um, I, yeah, I appreciate you going into that. And I, let's, let's shift gears because I think one of the, you know, like I said, one of the main reasons why I, why I wanted to have you on the podcast was to talk travel and to talk creativity and talk, you know, photography. So I, I, I appreciate the, the side tangent of, of debates and some of these other uh, aspects because uh, I think that that's really valuable information. And, and let's, let's dive into some travel because you have had 
Yeah, you've had some some pretty crazy journeys over the past nine years, and um, you know you were in 175 different countries over seven continents around the world, all 50 states, every Canadian province. I mean, you've you've kind of like gone, done, and, and seen a lot. And I guess where I would love to start is how did that travel change you? Like, I think we all conceptually know that that travel shifts us in some way, shape, or form, that we grow and we expand in some way. But I'm curious to get your insight after traveling for that long and in that many different countries and, and cultures, how did it shift you over the course of the nine years? And, and maybe if you can take us through how it shifted you in the beginning and maybe the middle and the end, um, I, I think that that would be some some great, valuable information. I think at a fundamental level, so if somebody who knew me before I started traveling and knew me today I don't think my personality has changed or, or anything major like that. A lot of the differences have come in, in more subtler ways. So when I first started traveling, I can remember. So I, I started basically um, heading west. That was the plan, just west. So I went to Hawaii first. And the reason I went there is because um, it's pretty easy to get acclimated to life on the road in Hawaii. It's part of the U.S. I took the opportunity to learn how to scuba dive. And then I went to French Polynesia. And here I was in a place where they didn't speak English and... I was kind of intimidated. Um, I was kind of afraid to, you know, there are these buses you can get that are like a dollar and you can just hop on. I'll take you to you know, a different part of the island. And I did not do that. I took a taxi because that was kind of the safe option. And over time, that changed uh, the confidence you get traveling. Now you can drop me anywhere in the world, pretty much, and I'll, I'll be just fine. You know, even if I can't speak the language, uh, I've been in enough situations where I know how to figure it out and things like that. So I think confidence is a big part of it. I wouldn't say that I was an, uh, an unconfident person, but just uh, my confidence in being on the road and your ability to figure out situations that are brand new certainly has grown. Another big change is my attitude towards things, possessions and objects. Before I started traveling, I had a 3,000 square foot house on a lake, far too big for one person. Uh, today, I have a 650 square foot apartment, and I, I really don't want or need any more than that. You know, maybe I could get a, a slightly bigger place that had a, an office with a, you know, a podcast studio or something like that. That's about it. I lived almost for a decade out of a bag. So that was all my clothes and everything else. I really have no desire for a closet full of stuff anymore. Own a few things and make sure those things are good things, you know. I think a smaller number of objects of higher quality is better than just a whole bunch of crap. And I remember when I moved out of my home back in 2007, I was putting some things in storage and I was just dumbfounded at the amount of stuff I had, you know, things that I just didn't realize that I had purchased that you needed for, you know, maybe one use or cleaning supplies or things like that. A, a dust cover for your toaster. <laughs> I don't need a dust cover for my toaster. My toaster needs a dust cover. And you start, you have things that need things, right? And it, there's just all sorts of stuff. You know, you, you know, you don't even think about it. When I, when I moved into this place last year, I took this stuff out of storage. Things that, so my life was basically on pause for a decade almost. And I was taking this stuff out and I was like, why do I have all these cooking supplies? I never cooked that much. Why, why do I have this? And I ended up getting rid of a lot of that. Uh, there's still stuff I probably need to get rid of. Uh, so that's changed a lot. And the other thing is my, my attitude, you know, we're talking about politics and a lot of Americans have a very American centric view of the world, whether you're on the right or the left, 
that we view the world's problems through our problems or through our experience or our history, not realizing that it's thought of in completely different ways in different places around the world. And that has very much changed how I look at a lot of things, what problems exist. Or, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't even consider problems. We never hear about them on the news, yet they're horrible events. You know, one of the the biggest things that ever happened after World War II was the uh, conflict in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where almost 5 million people were killed. And you never heard about that in the news. It was just a non-story because we weren't involved. And because we weren't involved, it just didn't exist. And so that's another thing that changed as well. Very interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, it's cool to hear you have that perspective. I think, you know, obviously travel is going to shift different things for different people. But I think that there are some, some of those, some, you know, some of those things that you mentioned are, are sort of uh, sometimes universal for people or like how we perceive material goods, especially if you travel for six months and you go through parts of Southeast Asia or India and countries that, that generally have less, your your perspective often shifts. Um, I'm curious in, in terms of you, you said that you can kind of get dropped anywhere now in the world and be okay. And for people that, you know, have done the sort of travel to five-star hotels or uh, all-inclusive resorts. I, I would love for you to unpack some of the keys to what that looks like. How how can we be more comfortable if if, if we're going to go traveling? Like I'm taking a trip at the end of this month to go to Mar- to Marrakesh and Morocco and Madrid, and I don't speak the languages there. And so, what are some of the tips that that we should know when going into countries that we've never been before, where we don't speak the language, and it's going to be very challenging? from a perception to get around? What, what what can we know? What do we need to know in order to be set up for success? Uh, well, first of all, the good thing is the international language of tourism is English, mm. which means so long as you're dealing with people in the tourism industry, that's hotels, tour guides, things like that, uh, you can probably get by with English in most places. And if you're going to Morocco, even though English is not one of the, the main languages, you should be able to get by just fine. You should t- go out of your way to learn a few of the basic phrases in, let's say, Arabic and French, if you're going to be there, if you're going to be in Madrid, uh, learn a little bit of Spanish, please, thank you, stuff like that. Can I get something to eat? You know, some basic words, uh, just to make it look like you're trying. I don't think you need to be fluent in, in every language of every country you go to, uh, but you should certainly make an effort to do that. And also learn a little bit about the place, like the history, even if it's just reading the Wikipedia entry before you go, just to get a, a feel for what the country has been through, what's its past. And uh, I always like talking to people there about it as well to get their perspective of, you know, their view of the world, which is oftentimes very different than what you might think it is. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. And so in terms of, I mean, you and I were talking before about travel and you were mentioning that there's, there's sort of a bunch of places that people always seem to go. And these are the overpopulated tourist areas like Paris, you know, is, I think Paris is the number one tourist location in the world. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, we sort of have these like centralized places that a lot of people go to. I would love to hear a few of your favorite places that are sort of off the beaten path that are off the grid that people normally wouldn't go visit, but they should, but that they should absolutely go and visit before, you know, before they die. Actually, Paris is no longer the most visited place. It's now Bangkok. Hmm. But it was the it was the most popular for a very long time. But you're right. Uh, there are certain places that everyone visits, and it's not that those places are bad. You know, Paris is a great place to visit. Bangkok is a great place. I spent a lot of time in Bangkok, so I'm not saying you shouldn't go 
to any of these places. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that a lot of people are simply unaware of anything else. So if you were to, you know, I've met people like, oh, I, I so want to go to Paris. I've dreamed of Paris forever. And uh, another question I love to ask is, can you name me another city in France? <laughs> and for a lot of times they can't. <laughs> they can at something like Nice, Lyon. I mean, that's about it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they're ignorant or anything. The fact of the matter is there are certain things that are in the popular consciousness and those are the things people want to see and experience. So you'll notice that a lot of Indian restaurants, this is true all over the world, are either named after the Taj Mahal or they'll have a photo of the Taj Mahal in their signage or inside the, the restaurant, right? Because the Taj Mahal has become synonymous with India. And so, so many people, when they go to India, they want to see the Taj Mahal. And it's great. I've been there. I, I wouldn't say don't go. But then the question is, okay, what else is there to see in India? People are often at a complete loss of, of anything else in the entire country of India, which is a big country. China is, is reduced to the Great Wall of China, right? Peru is Machu Picchu. Italy, Leaning Tower of Pisa, maybe the Colosseum. Um, and, and that's it, because those are the things we know. But there's a lot of other things as well. For example, uh, just to give you, uh, Venice is an extremely well-visited place, probably gets too many visitors. It's causing a lot of problems in the city. Population in Venice has shrunk dramatically uh, because people can't afford to live there anymore. And there's all these cruise ships that are showing up as well, which is another huge thing. 20 minutes away from Venice, the 20 minute train ride is the city of Padua. It has the largest uh, public square in Europe. It has a fantastic cathedral. It has the Scrivingi Chapel, which is kind of like the beta test for the Sistine Chapel, which ended up being created. It's, it's a fantastic location. Only let a few people in every day uh, because it's climate controlled and, and they really limit it. Uh, the oldest botanical garden in the world is there. Compared to Venice, nobody goes there because we have the canals and everything else burned into our consciousness of, of things that we've kind of seen and experienced in the media our whole lives. But these other places like Verona, that is also, you know, relatively close by, we, we, we don't know. And if, if people are aware of Verona at all, it's because of Shakespeare. And there's this place there that's called uh, Juliet's Balcony, and that's where they all go. In Paris, I'm, I'm actually I'm starting a new podcast, which kind of deals with this. It talks about the backstory of a lot of places and things. And my first episode is going to be on the Mona Lisa. And the reason I'm doing an entire episode on the Mona Lisa was a, a statistic I came across that 25% of the visitors to the Louvre visit, they go to see the Mona Lisa and they leave. And in the course of doing research for this episode, I realized that that statistic is not true, that the act, the, the, guy, the director of the Louvre says it's closer to 80% because that's all they know. That one famous painting, they want to see it. They can tell their friends they saw it and they're not interested in anything else in the world's largest museum. There are some great national parks. So in the US, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon get millions of visitors every year. There are parks in Alaska, which get thousands a year. The greatest national park, I think, in North America, the greatest. And, and we're talking, you know, Yosemite is great and Yellowstone is great. These are some great parks. It's Nahani National Park in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Not easy to get to. You have to get in by float plane. It gets 800 visitors a year. One of the largest waterfalls in the world is there. Fantastic canyons, mountains, absolutely stunning. And almost nobody goes there. Most Canadians have never even heard about it. In the Caribbean, a fascinating thing about why certain islands are popular is because they're the islands where you can put in a long runway and they get direct flights. Well, my favorite island in the Caribbean is the island of Dominica. 
not to be confused with the Dominican Republic. It's an extremely mountainous island, extremely lush, very green, uh, lots of rivers and waterfalls. But the problem is it's so mountainous that they can't put in a long runway for wide-body jets. And as a result, it's the least visited country in the Western Hemisphere. So what it means is you have to go to like Martinique or Guadeloupe and then take like a 10-minute flight to Dominica. It, it, it's not a big deal, but nobody does it. And as a result, this fantastic island, which is one of the best places in the Caribbean, gets the least amount of visitors just for that simple reason alone. There, there, there's tons of places. I'm actually, I, I got a book proposal in the works about this where I'm trying to put together a list of these, of these great places that a lot of people just don't know exists. And uh, there's so many of them. One, and I, I'm almost hesitant to put it in the book. Have you seen the most recent Star Wars movie? Yeah. Uh, the Force Awakens. Okay, so the last scene of the movie where you finally see Luke Skywalker, spoiler everyone, he's on it. That, that I, the place he's at is a real place called Skellig Michael. It is an island off the coast of the Ring of Kerry in Ireland. And I remember giving some speeches at some universities before Star Wars came out. I said, look, if you get the chance, go to this place now. Because once Star Wars comes out, everyone's going to kind of know about it. And the, the demand to go there has certainly shot up. But it's a great example of how when something gets into the popular consciousness, then all of a sudden, you know, it has to be in Star Wars for people to care about it. Another great example are the uh, places that... Uh, were shooting destinations in Game of Thrones, that until they were in Game of Thrones, people really didn't care too much about it. But the moment it's in Game of Thrones and they know this is King's Landing or this is the wall, uh, then it's, it's something that they want to go see. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so interesting that you're talking about that popular consciousness uh, component, because I think it's funny. I was watching Game of Thrones last night and there was a scene uh, with Daenerys Targaryen's, you know, castle and I was like, wow, that, that island looks amazing. Like, I would love to go and visit that. And, and you know, up until that point, and I started, you know, researching where it was after. But but up until that point, you know, I, I never really thought about going to some of these more remote places. And I think, you know, our perception is often that these places are going to be much more challenging to get to. They're going to be much more challenging, you know, in order to get around once we're there. Like you're talking about the National Park up in uh, up in northern Canada what are some things so i have two questions on this front because i think that a lot of people want to especially people like me you know i've been to quite a few countries kind of traveled around quite a bit and i would love to get off the 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 trail a little bit more and see some of these unique places so i have i really have two questions first and foremost where where can people find more information about some of these like you mentioned your book that's coming out but in the meantime where can people get more information about some of these more unique places. And, and then secondly, um, how can how can we set ourselves up for success when we're going to go out into some of these areas that maybe are less populated, less traveled to? Um, what, what did you do to, to actually prepare for that? Um, all the information for all these places is online. The trick is not finding the information. The trick is knowing about it in the first place. Um, that's really kind of the catch. So one of the things I, I kind of start, I stumbled into this when I started traveling was I went out of my way to visit UNESCO World Heritage Sites. I went to my first one in Hawaii. I didn't never, never heard of it before. I didn't know what it was. But uh, Volcanoes National Park was a World Heritage Site. And then Easter Island, which I was going to soon after was. And I kind of looked online and noticed there was like at the time over 800 of these around the world. Today, there's over 1,000. So I started to go out of my way to visit these things. Now, some of them are very obvious places like the pyramids, the Great Wall, Taj Mahal, things like that. But the vast majority are not obvious places. They're places that you probably haven't heard about. So that's an, an easy starting point. 
that you can find out what the World Heritage Sites are for a given place you're going, see if there's anything around there, because you'll often be very pleasantly surprised um, at, at, at what's in the region. Um, you know, guidebooks are often a, a, a big help. And the other thing is to just get in a community of people where uh, there are other travelers. So I have a Facebook group that I started. It's called the Everything Everywhere Travel Community. And um, it's just, a, it, there we're close to 4,000 people in it, but most of the people in the group are really well-traveled. So when someone posts a question that says, you know, oh, I'm going to such and such, what do you recommend? We usually have a lot of people who can chime in and say, you know, have dinner here, go make sure to check this place out. And I think learning from other travelers is really the best way to do it. Even, you know, when I was on the road, you'd meet people like, let's say Southeast Asia, there's kind of a circuit a lot of people do in Southeast Asia. And you'll see people that are, you know, coming from the direction you're going we're just there. And they'll tell you, oh, yeah, well, we went and did this and this. I wouldn't do this. Go to this place. And learning from other travelers is, I think, a, a really the best way to do it. Uh, kind of the collective wisdom of the people that have gone before you. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, that's that's something that I, I, I've tried to do in the past is actually get, leave spaces within my travel open to inquire with locals about where where to actually go. And get feedback and insight from them on, on getting pointed in the right direction or, you know, people that have kind of ventured off the path before. So I think that's that's some really great insight. Let me actually, uh, that's a thing people bring up a lot mm. is they want to be like a local. <laughs> but here's the thing. Locals don't do anything. The vast, you know, a lot of people, I would maybe even say the majority of people that like, say, have lived their whole life in New York, never been to the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Maybe they went on a school trip when they were a kid, but that's it. They have no desire to go because they could go at any time. And the result is they never do it. And I've seen this all over the world that people just take for granted whatever is in their locality. And so asking them advice as a visitor is often not really a good idea uh, that that talking to other people who visited that area can probably get you a better idea of uh, what to do as a tourist. I'm sitting here in Minneapolis and one of my friends recently came by and he was just visiting the town, seeing stuff. And I had a hard time thinking of anything for him to do because when I'm here, I don't do anything. I work, I eat, the end. I'm not, you know, seeing sites, going to hotels or, or stuff like that. Whereas when I'm visiting a town, those are exactly the kind of things I'm doing. Yeah, tourists and uh, locals are not necessarily the people you want to emulate when it comes to traveling. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, the people that have given me the best advice are often transplants in those areas. Like people, people that didn't necessarily grow up there, but have lived there maybe for a few years and have ventured out and explored around. And they usually have, they usually have pretty cool insight because it's almost like they're a, they're a transplant in that area and they've kind of gone and ventured off into the, into the local. Like we've, I found some cool surf spots because of that, but I, I think you're right. Like the locals usually give you like the, the, the top five things that you would find in a guidebook or online anyway, right? Like the new, like the statue of Liberty in New York. So in in terms of some of your travel, what what's kind of like, I would love to hear, and I'm, I'm sure that you've probably been asked this question before, but what's like one of the craziest stories or experiences that you had in your nine years of travel around the globe? Um, I got kicked out of a country and ended up changing a law. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So th this is very early in my travels. I went to, I was go basically island hopping through the Pacific, going to all these little island countries. And I was going, to, and for the most part, if you have an American passport, you can just show up and, you know, you don't need a visa. But there was one exception to this, and this was the nation of Kiribati, which is spelt Kiribati, but it's pronounced Kiribati, even though there's no S in it, because the T-I is pronounced like an S, and it's, it's a long story. 
So it's, it's not a very big country. They don't have a lot of embassies. So when I was in Fiji, I made the trip to Suva, the capital. I drove there, had a meeting, a uh, scheduled appointment at the embassy, and I got my visa. Not a problem. The difference is, is that for most countries, when you get a visa, there's a sticker that goes in your passport. But for Kiribati, it's a small country, rather poor, and they just had a rubber stamp and a ballpoint pen, and that was the visa. So they did the rubber stamp in my passport page. They signed in the dates with a ballpoint pen, and that was that. And I should add, if you are if you lived in a commonwealth country like Canada, UK, Australia, you didn't need a passport at all or a visa. So on my way to Kiribati, I was in the Solomon Islands, and I got caught in a rainstorm with all my stuff, and everything got drenched, including my passport. Now, if you've seen passport pages, they're kind of plasticky, so it's usually not that big of a deal, except the ink from the Kiribati visa bled off the page, and the ballpoint pen that they used totally bled off the page. So when I arrived at the airport in Tarawa, I present my passport, and uh, they wouldn't let me in. And I was like, look, you can call the embassy in, in Suva if you want. Uh, I have a flight out in four days. You know, I have a hotel reservation and it's an island, so I'm not going anywhere. He's like, nope, we're not letting you in. So for the only real time in 10 years of traveling, I kind of threw a fit. And the airport uh, manager was there. He kind of took pity on me. He said, look, uh, we have a flight going to Fiji in six hours. You can get on that flight, which is the one you would get on in four days anyhow. So I said, fine, because they were going to send me back to the Solomon Islands. So I wrote a very nasty email to the Minister of Tourism. And I was like, look, no one will, nobody wins here. You know, I'm not staying in your country. I'm not spending money. You know, I'm not able to visit, so I'm not winning. And there was this is a victory for no one. There was no point to any of this. So I sent this off and kind of just forgot about it. Unbeknownst to me, he he sends forwards this email to the prime minister of the country. And then three months later, Americans no longer needed a visa to go to Kiribati anymore. <laughs> so if anyone out there wants to go to Kiribati and you're American and you don't need a visa, I'm the guy to thank for it. <laughs> you, have full, you have full freedom. You can go for it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, all right, Gary. Well, we got to start wrapping up here. Um, I really appreciate you joining me on the Men Talks podcast. You have some incredible stories and some incredible insight. I just have a, a couple, a couple last sort of like random uh, quick fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. All right. So uh, one of your favorite countries to visit? Uh, Oman. Oman. One of, the, one of your favorite photographs that you've ever taken and where it was? Uh, it was during political protests in 2010 in Bangkok. And I was between several hundred cops in full riot gear and several thousand protesters. And I was in the middle of the street uh, with my camera and it started to rain and everyone got off the street except this one protester who was wearing body armor and he was staring down all of these cops in riot gear. It was kind of my little Tiananmen Square moment where this guy turned around, looked over his shoulder at me. And I just had this picture of this one protester with all these cops in the background. And that's one of my favorite shots. Wow. Um, one of your favorite moments that you've ever experienced, one of the, one of the, one of your favorite beautiful moments that you've ever experienced, uh, swimming with jellyfish in Palau. They have these places called jellyfish lakes. They're filled with jellyfish about the size of your fist and, uh, they have no stingers. It's, it's just an amazing experience. Nothing like it on earth. Incredible. Uh, one of the most terrifying moments that you've ever experienced during your travels, um, going to see the independence day fireworks in Taipei, uh, simply because there was such a massive crush of people. I, I was almost certain that people were going to get trampled to death. And uh, that was really the, the, the time I was most scared, I think, uh, was getting caught up in that. Hmm. Okay. And uh, I, I read on your website that you're part owner of an NFL franchise. Can you unpack that for us? 
Yeah, I own a share of stock in the Green Bay Packers. Amazing. Why the Packers? Uh, because I grew up 20 minutes from Lambeau Field. Perfect. And uh, the Green Bay Packers, and a lot of people don't know uh, know this. You might know it if, if you know, uh, you're American. Uh, but the Packers are the only NFL team that do not have an owner. There's no billionaire that owns the Packers. It's owned by the community. So there's about, I think, close to 250,000 individual shareholders. I am one of them. They've done stock sales, I think a couple of years ago, and they did one in the nineties. Uh, so they do it periodically when they want to raise money for usually capital improvements to the stadium. And uh, it is a real share of stock with some restraints because uh, there's a particular category of corporation in Wisconsin that only the Packers qualify for. So they don't give dividends. Uh, you cannot sell it. You can leave it to someone in your will, but you do get invited to the shareholders meeting and you do get to vote for the on the board of directors and ask questions of the management. Amazing. So incredible. Uh, and final final question. Where is one place that you still want to visit? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> uh, Lake Baikal. I would love to go to certain places in Antarctica. Uh, Tristan da Cunha. Love to do some exploring deep in the Amazon. Uh, there's a bunch of national parks in the Canadian Arctic uh, that I would really like to visit. Uh, I'm on a quest to visit all the national parks in the United States and Canada. And that's kind of the ones I have left over in the, the far Canadian Arctic. Uh, the Faroe Islands. Man, there's so many. Wow. The world's a big place. And I've seen a lot of it, but there's still so much I haven't seen. It's incredible, man. Uh, I mean, it, it's inspiring. And uh, for for everybody out there that's that's listening, I highly, highly encourage that you head over to everything-everywhere.com. I was actually on there last night uh, checking out some cool spots. Uh, in Scotland for my upcoming trip and a few other places that, that I'm going to be heading. Um, some really, really valuable information in there. So Gary, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. For everybody else out there, uh, thanks very much for tuning in. This is Connor Beaton from Mantox signing off. Uh, join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.